What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. We're back for a new season. We're back. We took a little break, and I am excited to be back because this season, I have gotten to talk to some of my favorite musicians. You will find out who they are soon. It feels good to be back. I'm on a little break from festy season right now, gearing up, getting ready. Bunch of new tunes for a tour this fall. I feel like I've been playing a lot this year, and I'm feeling in a really great flow. My band is sounding tight as ever. And we got like 40 new songs that we're playing on tour that we haven't been doing for the last year. So I'm gearing up to uh, work on that. So I've had to practice a lot of I've been practicing a lot of guitar this last couple of weeks. It's been really fun. Just diving into a bunch of things and learning old tunes, kind of different techniques and things that end up showing up from songs that I haven't played for a while. If you're in the U.S., come check us out on tour. I'm going to be out on tour. Corey Wong with my full band, Sierra Hall, Robbie Wolfson. We're going to have Victor Wooten out, band Truesdale. Depending on what city you're at, that depends on who's going to be with me. But either way, they're all going to be awesome. Today on the show, we've got Chris Shiflett. I am such a huge fan of Chris. You might know him from the Foo Fighters. I've seen him with that band several times. He's also got a solo project that is fantastic. Let's not hold you up any longer. Chris Shiflett. You guys hip to DistroKid yet? It is the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to get your music onto streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, pretty much anywhere else that people consume music. You can get an account starting at $19.99 per year. Per year, you get unlimited uploads and you keep 100% of your earnings. 100%. So for somebody like me, I put out I put out a lot of albums last year. It was still just one annual price, no matter how many albums I have up. And I keep 100% of the earnings that come in. There's a lot of reasons I love DistroKid, but the ones I want to highlight here are the Teams feature. So basically, I can assign a percentage of royalties to go to any of my collaborators, however we work it out, or my managers work with their managers, and we work out, you know, whatever percentage split. My percentage goes to me, and then DistroKid gives the other percentage to the other collaborator or artist. It works amazing, and neither one of us as artists needs to handle the accounting. DistroKid just does it for us. Set! If you'd like to give them a try, use my VIP link to get 30% off your first year of DistroKid membership, distrokid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong. There it is. Let's get to the episode. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. I'm stoked to have you on. Not right on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Where are you joining us from right now? Where are you? I am in the office at my house here in Los Angeles. And um, I should warn you that I have these insane cats that are wandering around here that I just fed, but I, they're looking at me like they're not satisfied with the uh, the food selection today, and so they might disrupt our interview. What are you, kibbles and bits guy? Well, I will tell you. So, let's let's get right into the gear, dude. Are you kibbles and bits? Let's get into the gear. We we are both. We have kibbles and bits around here because we have these cats that are called uh, they're uh, called Maine Coons. I don't know if you've ever seen them um, online. You. Um, you can find them like all over Instagram and stuff. They're gigantic. They're these huge cats and they're like, um, they're, they're nuts. I mean, I've had cats all my life, but like these cats, you have to feed them like three times a day. Every time you feed them, it's like they've never seen food before. Like they're like practically like eat your arm off while you're trying to empty, <laughs> empty the cat food can into their bowl. They're just nuts, um, but they're great. 
and they're they're huge. They might wander through this. I don't know if if you use any of this video for your for your show, but you might get a get a sighting. Only if there's a really really good cat attack or some sort of interesting thing in the background, then you know we'd kind of have to. Yeah, right? it could happen. It could happen. Well, dude, I just saw a video of you recently with Sierra. Sierra Hall is a great friend of mine, and oh, she nice. said that she was doing this thing at the Opry with you, and yes. I saw a video of your new project and the stuff that you're doing playing at the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about this new endeavor. I love this kind of Americana road that you've been taking, and I've been listening to a lot of your new stuff. Tell, tell me a little bit about what's going on. Well, yeah, so so I got together. Um, I, I went out to Nashville to record some stuff last year, about a year and a half ago, which was like the first thing I'd done, you know, post-COVID and lockdown and all that stuff. Um, so I went out there, and I recorded a couple songs with Vance Powell producing um, over at Sputnik. Yeah. And one of the songs that I sent him a demo for, I had played like a kind of a, you know, low rent mandolin part on it. You know, just sort of, I own a mandolin. I wouldn't exactly say I play mandolin, you know. Sure. But I knew I wanted that on 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 the tune. And um, and so he arranged, because he knows Sierra, and, and arranged for her to come in and play it and and do, and she's played all this beautiful. I mean, it's just amazing. Like her her track on, on the record. And, and then she sang all the harmony vocals on it. Uh, for this song called Long Long Year that I put out a couple of months ago. And then and then when I when I was gonna go out and do the opera again recently, you know, I wanted to play that song. And so I just reached out to her and just just to see if she was gonna be in town and she was and um and and said she'd come down and play. And then I was kinda like, you know, if, if Sierra's gonna come, it'd be cool to get like you know, she's a ripper, you know, because like we got it. And then it's oh, yeah. not like, you know, the stuff that I do isn't in like that, like, you know, isn't really the platform for her to like fully just go for it on the mandolin. So I was like, corral some of your, some of your friends and like, let's do a bluegrass tune. You know, it'd be fun for me too. Cause it's yeah. so out of my comfort zone, you know? And, and, uh, and she did, and she pulled a bunch of people together and, and it was great. It was super fun. That's dope. Yeah. I love the new songs that you've putting out and I love Vance's production work. Vance is a funny dude. As you were saying that, I just realized I had one hilarious night with Vance when you audio, when Universal Audio was starting to work on Luna, he was like, they brought in some people to beta test in their mm. studio. And Vance and I went out to a tiki bar that night and he was just, he has so many stories. It sounds like his studio is incredible. It's that place in Nashville. I, I, I don't remember. Sputnik, you, Sputnik yeah, or whatever. You yeah. But, but it sounds like a really fun, cool studio. He showed me pictures and he's, yeah, it, it seems it's like a, a great cool spot. room. And, and, you know, um, and I was flying out there, you know, just for a couple of days. So it was great. Like I just, I just brought one guitar and my pedal, my little mini pedal board, and and he just has, you know, all the stuff that, you know, all the amps and everything that you're going to want. And he assembled all the musicians and and, uh, and and put the whole thing together. So it was great. Yeah. I love Vance. He was cool. I didn't I didn't go to a tiki bar with him, but I was in there recording when there was like, <laughs> you know, like a tornado or something was coming through town. Like it was, there was, there was like flooding and lightning and cream. I'm, I'm from California and we don't get storms like that. So it was making yeah. me a little nervous. While we were in there, you could hear it through the <laughs> through the walls. Um, yeah, and then, wow. then when uh, you know when I when we got out of there that night, it had all kind of passed, and it's just sort of Good. the aftermath. I have a question about your approach to lead guitar playing because you come from punk rock background. I I swear I I think I saw you when I was a kid with uh, no use for a name. Yeah, I feel like. 
I feel like that was maybe the first, I saw you maybe at like the quest in Minneapolis. My parents oh, dropped yeah. me off or something or like some, <laughs> some have, menu, yeah. I swear that was the first time I saw you. And then I saw you pop up so many different places. So I'm, I'm aware of your background in different genres and different types of, of bands going from the punk scene to the rock thing, to a huge rock and roll band to now this Americana thing. When a lot of people think about a lead guitar player, they think about like our, our, our like just general idea, lead guitar player, this is what it is. We're kind of still have this vision of shreddy guitar sure. player and really flashy and all this stuff. But you have a really cool, I know that you have those chops. I know that you can pull that off, but there's something about the way that you play lead guitar where it comes a little maybe more from the hook realm of things. It obviously has a lead aspect to it where it's like, of course, it's lead guitar, but it's not always the way that people would traditionally think about lead guitar soloing or whatever. Can you talk to me a little bit about your approach? Yeah, sure. You know, it's 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 interesting because like, I mean, the first thing that anybody ever heard of me doing was was no use for a name. So people, you know, associate me with that, which is great. Like, you know, and then that was the band that I was in at that time. And I love that music and everything. Yeah. But really, like when I was a little kid, you know, I had older brothers and everything. And and uh, and we're talking about like the 1970s into the 80s. And, and it was a guitar hero era. And so my heroes, yeah. the reason I play guitar is because of guys like Richie Blackmore and Ace Frehley and 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 Randy Rhodes and, and you know, all Eddie Van Halen, all those people. So you know that those were those were my hero, guitar playing heroes uh when i was when i was little i mean still are really but like and it was like sort of later influences like then there's music changed so by the time you get into the 90s and and like punk rock and and alt rock and all that stuff lead guitar playing had had really gone out of folk you know stylistically sure. and so i think like my guitar playing had to adapt everybody's mm -hmm. guitar playing had to adapt because you weren't you know it's there was a funny time there for a while anytime you played a guitar so at all people in the in the in the crowd were like Ooh, and you know make like you know you're being a little rock guy or whatever you know there's that, that whole thing <laughs> <laughs> but like you know so so and and i you know and i also i love guitar players like mike campbell and elliot easton and people like that who yeah. wrote like who wrote like their guitar solos are like parts of the they're like anthem anthemic lyrical parts of the song you know totally and hooky so um you know I, I just love both you know i think that there's a time and a place for for both you know you don't always want to be all shreddy spaghetti but when you have those moments it's super fun you know it's it's i think it's kind of nice to where the world's at now where it's sort of like the shame of the 80s has kind of passed it feels like you know what i mean like and <laughs> and you saw and really like you know in americana and, and country music you know never stopped being guitar centric totally you know uh it sort of never went out of style there and and um and then you know i think you kind of saw when bands like the strokes started popping up that there was this in jack white yeah there was this reemergence of like lead guitar and it was but lead guitar a little different you know, than it had been, you know, in in my childhood. And so I just, I love all of it. And I think it really depends on, on the song that you're playing on top of, you know, it's sort of what it, what it dictates, but yeah, it's, it's fun to, it's fun to cut loose for sure. Do you see that changing? Do you see it now that the, like you're saying, the shame of the eighties is kind of gone. Do you see us ever going back to Maybe not the same self-indulgent look at right. me, but is there some sort of, is that going to be back? I ever? mean, I, I would argue that maybe it's, it's kind of back already. I mean, I think the self-indulgent look at me never goes away from 
from music and bands and and pop stars and stuff. I think that's just always there. It's just sort of the thing that people want you to look at them for. <laughs> maybe maybe cha- you know, it's yeah. just like different ingredients or something. So so yeah, like um, I don't know. I feel like it. I feel like it is back in a lot of ways. Um, I agree with with a lot of music. There's so many incredible guitar players doing so much stuff. But I'm saying like in the general zeitgeist mm. of. Yeah, music. I don't know, man. It's like the general people public. lament, like where'd the rock and roll go and all that stuff. And um, I never have a good answer to that because who controls that? Is it there's like there's bands like the Stones or whatever that are still out there selling, filling stadiums and stuff. So obviously people want rock and roll on some level. I, I think the bigger question is why is there not that next generation of bands that are coming up to replace it? Or are those bands out there and they're just sort of not being pushed by the gatekeepers of industry to become the the uh the superstars that maybe they would have thirty years ago? I don't know, man. I really don't I honestly don't know. I I I have kids. I look at my own kids' musical tastes. They're pretty varied they listen to a lot of stuff. They listen to some rock bands that I've never heard of from that are, um, if not current, sort of recent. They listen to a lot of hip hop. They listen to stuff like Tame Impala. They listen to like yeah. uh, some classic rock. They listen to like The Cure. Um, uh, they listen to the you know, Jawbreaker, things like that. So it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I, I just don't know where, I, who knows? I think it would take one band to just really break through like some, like a modern motley crew of a a bunch of 22 year old people to to bring you know to bring that back but i i don't know i don't i don't know i don't know if that's going to happen and i would think that it it would be hard to expect it to ever come back to be the same and it it, it, we're just a different society now and also i think you're totally right a lot of those bands do exist and a lot of those those people are out there doing it it's just not necessarily on the the same yeah. scale not, as it it's once not mainstream was you know which is also fine yeah you know i mean <laughs> sure i mean i'd like to see more rock bands i guess in the mainstream but um i never know it's like does is that stuff driven by industry or is it driven by fans or is it both or i you know who knows if there's anybody who's a part of a band that could maybe sway some influence you might be one of those cats yeah but we're old <laughs> I mean, it's got to be like there's got to be some like like I said some 22 year olds out there that that break through. We're we're still doing our thing, you know. But yeah, it's but you guys are consummate cool. Like there, that's something else that's like there's a lot of people that are older, but there's still a cool factor that just exists. And, and like some bands that are older, I don't know for whatever reason they're just not labeled or not seen as cool anymore. You guys are still cool in the in the general zeitgeist as far as what i can see and also just me as a fan and a musician it's like you're cool well well thank (laughs) you very much i'll I'll take that compliment you're very sweet (laughs) (laughs) i I don't think you're wrong though in saying that probably some 22 year olds would would help there's probably some 22 year olds out there that are going to hear this interview interview they're gonna be like fuck you motherfucker we're here (laughs) yeah you're the I one know. selling out stadiums I and arenas. Like, <laughs> We're out here trying to play for 300 people. That's what I they're know. probably thinking. I know. I know. <laughs> I don't. It's it's funny, man. You know, like, you know, I've been a, a working musician for a very long time, but I am not an expert on musical trends, you know, musical business trends, sure. the latest technology. I just, you know, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, 
I'm just as confused by it all as everybody else, I think. I'm just trying I'm yeah. just trying to hold down my little corner of the stage playing guitar, you know? Okay, let's let's get right back into that. You play guitar in several different situations with other guitar players. And this is something that I'm curious about because a lot of people, obviously this is a guitar podcast, people listening to this podcast sometimes have trouble playing with other guitar players. And I think there are... There are ego things involved in that, whether it be the person listening right now or the person that they're playing with. I think a lot of times guitar players have a hard time playing with others, whether it be playing nice on a personal <laughs> level or just kind of understanding like, what's right. my role? What's yeah. your role? And then just finding a way not to clash artistically, musically. Can you speak a little bit about how you approach playing with other guitar players how you listen, what you listen for, and what you try to contribute to songs? Sure, yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's something that you get with over time. Like when I was younger, I didn't listen to anybody else in any band. I didn't listen to the singer. I didn't listen to the drummer. I didn't listen, <laughs> didn't listen to anybody. You're just like spazzing out, trying, you know, trying to put everything into it. And then, and then you get a little season and, and you realize like, wait a minute, we, I got to listen to the, what the drums are doing, right? And, mm -hmm. Oh, the singer, you know, is, we're playing this too fast, so that we got to pull it back, you know? And, and that whole thing, like, and by the way, this is really something that country music taught me, was playing around the vocal. Mm. Big, there's a big part of country music that I, that I never thought about because it's not as much of a thing really in, in rock and roll. But that thing, like, try not to step on the vocal. You know, if you're going to put in your little guitar thing, put it between the lines and all that that sort of thing. But as far as playing specifically with other guitar players, like, I remember when, when um, like, just as a rule, even when it's just a two-guitar band, the idea of, you know, there's moments when you want to be doubling the same power chords or whatever, the same riff, and that's a thing. But a lot of the time, yeah. you kind of want to be in a different part of the neck, different voicing, you know, different, yeah. different uh, inversions of chords and that sort of thing to 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 bring out different, um, you know, things ring out differently. Or if you're gonna, yeah, you know, where you're gonna play your little melodic part, you know, you don't want it to necessarily be too low because then it's gonna be clashing with the root chords that the other guy's doing, all that kind of stuff. And then when you know when Pat came back in to to Foos, when he came back in the band, we did put a lot of thought initially into sort of like you know because there was the new stuff that we were working on but then there was also all the old stuff and we put a lot of thought into like not stepping on each other's toes you know um and really kind of playing in different parts of the neck or or pat would play a baritone you know and stuff sure. like that you know um to to be conscious of that and but yeah i think now we just kind of do it by second nature i just don't think we even talk about it too much or think about it too much we just kind of fall into it well, you brought up Pat joining back into the band. I am, so when I, I'm part of the band Wolfpack, and when I first joined the band, they had already had a few albums out. I was kind of an addition to the band. It wasn't a, I, I never auditioned. I never kind of, it was just like, hey, I was absorbed into the band. And then eventually it was like, oh, I'm just in the band right. now. And it was kind of, at first it was like, all right, I'm trying to find my lane, trying to find my thing. It's like, how long is this gonna? What is this gonna be like joining this band that's already existed? And now it's it's totally great. It's just being in the yeah. band is is fun. I'm curious for you, coming into a band in your experience, it had already existed. Pat left the band, came back to the band, left the band. I don't know. 
I feel like actually, I remember watching again when I was a kid. I feel like I was watching like the MTV Awards or something, and the Foo Fighters are playing on a rooftop, and he's just like, "Hey, I'm quitting the band or something." Yeah, I mean that was yeah that I I've I've seen that footage. That was when so there was a guy that played between Pat and I named Franz that had played yeah. with with Dave in, in his band before Nirvana, a band called Scream, and Franz replaced Pat. And if I remember that that thing that you're talking about maybe like pat passed the guitar to franz or something then he took over it was like yeah was, something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. yeah yeah that was all uh before my time um but it's it's it is an interesting thing that dynamic when you join a band of trying to kind of find your sea legs in it and trying to figure out what your role is and getting to know everybody and when I joined No Use for a Name, it was a very similar situation, just on a on a smaller scale. Because I joined this band that had been around for years, had a bunch of records out, um, and had had you know I think I was like the eighth guitar player or something. Like the same three guys had been there the whole time, and then they just had a, a constant you know revolving door of guitar players. So um, and I and I joined that band on a you know, I auditioned on a Thursday and left for tour on a Monday or whatever, you know, so it was really just trial by fire, which was pretty much the exact same situation with the Foo Fighters. I joined the band or, you know, I just auditioned for a band. I got the gig. We had a couple of rehearsals. We did a, a sneaky unannounced show at the Troubadour um, and then left for tour like on the Monday after that or so something like that. It was really yeah. fast. And, and I didn't know any of the guys, you know, had never met them. And was totally in awe of course of of the whole situation just couldn't believe that that it was even happening so it was wild you know i, I you i just went out and and just got to know everybody just by doing it you know and and playing and playing those songs yeah. and trying to figure out what am i supposed to play here and you know yeah it's it, it it takes a while i think in any situation it takes a while for eventually you know you go and you make a record and you do some touring and and um and you have a lot of sitting around in airports and backstage and hotel rooms and tour buses and all, you know, it's just band life and you, you just get to know each other. All those things you listed off are things that are not on the stage, which we that tour, we know the majority of touring, the, the 23 hours of the day, not yeah. on stage is, is there's a reason why you're talking yeah. about that and, and just kind of finding your place in the, in the kind of personal and social Sure. arrangement of what a group is like but i'm curious on the playing side you came into something like you said you're trying to find your sea legs both on a personal and musical level at what point for you do you did you feel like or do you feel like is appropriate in those situations where it's you're coming into something there was somebody else there okay how much do i cover their parts how much do i cover what's on the record how much do i change it to do like oh this is what i would do or this is my instincts what was your approach to that? And when you come into other bands like that? It's really funny. I mean, I think every band's different. But um, with with Foo Fighters, when I joined, there was a couple things, you know, some different tunings and stuff that I didn't clue into on the records that 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 Dave showed me. But we didn't talk about it a whole lot. And, and so I think even still, it'd be funny to go back and like isolate tracks from those earlier records that I didn't play on and see what the parts actually are. Cause I'm really just doing kind of my, <laughs> I was pretty much doing that from the start, just yeah. the way I heard it, but the way you hear it in a mix, you know, you might be listening to three guitar tracks that you're, that you're condensing into one thing. That's not quite any of them, you know what I yeah. mean? But, but sort of fills that, that space and, and, and maybe energy of what the part is. And, 
I think there was a lot of that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I remember one time, like, I mean, I'd been in the band for like, I don't even know, 15 years or something. And, and, and we were playing Aurora and Dave, uh, goes, Oh, you know, can you, instead of playing that there, could you play it here on the, you know? And I go, Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. I've always played it there. He goes, yeah, I've been wanting to tell you that for like the last 15 years, but um, <laughs> I just kept, kept forgetting. <laughs> so there were all yeah. these other things that we needed to get out of the way first. <laughs> exactly, right? You know what I mean? So it's, yeah, it's funny how that how that works. Yeah. And I, you know, I think you got to just, once you get to know everybody and you get to know what everybody, you know, it's everybody's sort of musical taste. I think there's just things that, you know, that you just you sort of learn what the what the parameters are in any band or any situation. Like, I, I remember yeah. watching that that Wilco documentary um, when they were making um, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and, like, things are kind of falling apart with the guitar player. And there was, like, I think they had made the record and got dropped. There was, it was, like, it was at, at like, a sort of traumatic point in the band thing. And I remember there's, there's, like, live footage of them playing where the guitar player just just taking like way too many guitar solos like it just it, it, you know like he just just playing over the top of shit that you're like you, you you're watching him like oh man you shouldn't be doing it and sure enough like the next scene is he gets fired <laughs> so you don't want to be you don't want to be that guy i'll just put it that way it's it's so funny because that's the guitar player version of you know like you somebody watching the bachelor like ooh you better not say that you're gonna exactly. get dumped on the next episode like you you see totally. it coming yeah. we see it as guitar players you, you're watching yeah. the show you're like this cat's getting yeah because clearly I, clearly is- he's at the point where he does not give a fuck yeah <laughs> well you're talking about your instinct and what your approach is and and coming to things obviously. You know, you've you've come in to be an artist yourself and as a singer and putting out your own records. I mean, you've been a part of Foo Fighters for 20 years ish or something and punk bands before that. And for the last 12 years or something, you've been putting out your own albums since the Chris Chivlet and Dead Peasants, all those sort of things. You've you've had to kind of find and be it well, not necessarily fine. You've maybe had it, but you've had to be able to express and let people know what your voice is as an artist, which might be a little bit different than what they expected. You know, some people, like I said, know you as a punk rocker. Some people know you as part of the Foo Fighters. They'd expect in some way what your music is going to be and how it's going to come across. Of course, me first and the gimme gimmies and other things like that are, are going to tick those boxes for those people. But for a lot of your music, it's been more on the Americana country acoustic side, especially as of late. How do you, or do you not care? How do you reconcile as an artist trying to go in a new direction and bring people along and say, hey, I know you like me for this, but check this out. This is also worth listening yeah, it's, to. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When I did that first um, Dead Peasants record was really the first time, although I'd been a fan of you know, alt country and, and country and, you know, singer songwriter stuff. Um, for a long time prior to that, that was the first time I'd ever tried to, to, uh, record some music that was more in that style. And it was, and it was, it was really fun, you know, jumping into that, but like, um, but it was also so far out of my comfort zone that, that when I went out and tried to play those songs live, it was a real process, like trying to play, you know, as a guitar player, like, my my bread and butter, my comfort zone is like high gain amps with fucking on pin, you know, pin. Yeah. Um, and that wall yeah. of sound and that, you know, noise and feedback and sustain, all that stuff that comes along with it. And being a part of a group, 
you know, where you're one of one part of this larger thing. And so playing music that was a little more acoustic based and, and when it was electric was more, you know, you know, like a playing a telly through a Fender combo or something, um, really took a while to get comfortable with. And there was actually a point where I was so uncomfortable playing acoustic solo gigs. That I just made myself do it. So like I just did it a ton because I was like, I have to figure out a way to actually enjoy this. Like, I really want to do it. I enjoy it when I'm sitting there by myself, but it scares the hell out of me to go do this live. I have to do this enough to where I can break through that and actually find myself enjoying it, which I, which I did. But it's, I think when you are used to, when you're A, known as for one thing, and you're, and that's, and you're also used to doing that, it is really hard. I don't so much worry about like, you know, bringing people, you know, trying to, hey, check this out kind of thing, um, as it is just wanting to find real true enjoyment when I'm doing it internally. You know what I sure. mean? I, um, yeah. yeah, from genre to genre. I mean, I, I get it too. Like, you know, if I was a, a fan of, so I'm sure I've been a fan of somebody that you love, you know, that they make music is a heavy metal <laughs> band or something. And then they go off and try to do something that's a totally different thing. And, and you're like, why are they doing that? That sucks. You know, and I, I don't doubt that there's people out there that, that view my music that way. You know what I mean? But, um, <laughs> sure. But, uh, but you just, can't worry about it too much and more and more over the years i think i've fused those two things together too well i think that's also the interesting thing about having fans for a lot of years is you of course as an artist get older but so do they right and their their artistic tastes might change as well sure and it, it very well could be that it's going along with what you're doing, you know, and, and that's it's interesting because cool. I think that people do have um, hangups on genres sometimes, like, and especially we as musicians are, sure. are obviously we're all very opinionated about this and that. But um, most people, if they're going to plunk down their 20 bucks to come see you at a club or whatever, when you're coming through town, I, I almost feel like most people don't even care what, about the genre. They just want to have a good time. They want to be entertained. Sure. They want to have a fun night. You know, um, they're rooting for you. They're not hoping you fail. They're like, they're, they're there to enjoy yeah. themselves. And, it, you know, it's, 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 you can, when you're standing on stage sort of looking at a room full of people, you can really convince yourself of all kinds of goofy nonsense. You know, you see one mm. person looking at their phone and you're like, oh my God, they all hate me. Oh, I'm so boring. This is terrible. <laughs> they all hate me. And you know what I mean? It's like that kind of stuff. You like, you have to kind of... I don't know how it is for other people, but for me, I'm kind of like constantly fighting some internal battle of insecurity when, you, when you're up there playing, you know? Do you think that's easier for you playing something like Wembley, like playing these gigantic stadiums, or is it easier for you in a, in a small club? I mean, it's the energy at a big show is like, is, is just overwhelming where, um, yeah. I mean, I always say you would you would really have to fall on your face, like literally fall on your face to derail that. It's just like, you know, you got you yeah, play yeah, 80,000 totally. people and they're all there to sing your songs back at you and have like the best night of their life. It's like if you can't get carried away, you know, like that's just going to carry you th through it, you know, totally, um, totally much, much more difficult to play to 30 people in a bar on a Tuesday night that have never heard your music and convince them. Yeah, you know, and win them over. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, and but they're both; those are both great things, and they kind of feed each other. 
You know, they really do. It's like, it's, I love that. I love that I get to do both because I kind of need to do both. Yeah. And you really prove yourself to the 30. But I do feel like I, I, if it's a smaller room, I I just see the individuals more. Yeah. yeah. So that's when I start to get into my head. Whereas for playing for 15, 20,000 people, or you've played for 80 or whatever. But for me, it's like, okay, we're playing in front of 20,000 people. I can't really make out who any of them are right. if I just kind of am just running around sure. and it's all this, like, of course you can see the first few rows, yeah. but there's the barriers and it's a little farther away and you kind of can't make out most of the people anyways. And just that, like you're saying, that sheer energy kind of blinds you even to the first yeah. few rows oh, yeah. where it's like, I don't know, I'm just playing to this, this mass of solar system of people or something that I can't yeah. even really tell who any of them totally. are and you know you gotta you gotta do like a million of those play to 30 people gigs to get there yeah of course you know? yeah and that it's like i don't want to like diminish it as being easy or something it's not um but it's it's once you get to that point it becomes it becomes this thing that's much much bigger than than you what what has been the biggest pressure point in your career whether it be I, uh, like career-wise or musically, where where do you feel like you had the most pressure on a single? Oh wow, thing. Um, there's a few of them out there. I mean, you know, anytime. I mean, so the, the some of the most high pressure gigs to me personally are always when you've made a new record and you're going out and you're playing that new single, like on Saturday Night Live or Letterman or something. You know what I mean? Like one sure. like one of those moments where you're like, it's not really second nature yet it's new there's like that one part that's hard and you got to get up here and you got to make a pedal chase (laughs) like those are the moments that i get really nervous you know (laughs) and then there are shows like i remember the first time we headlined the reading festival felt like a lot of pressure because you know it's Mm. just like it's it's important to you you know this like the reading festival is this historic festival to to people like us you know what i mean and and you're gonna go out there and you're gonna headline it for the first time like that meant a lot to us uh same with like wembley same with like playing glastonbury those shows that that you know it's like uh it's a real like honor to go get to be in that position you just want it to be great you know is the uh, was the opry scary for you at all oh my god so scary dude so scary yeah because you know like you go play the opry it's not it's not your crowd it's it's a room full of people that are there and they and they're hoping to see you know loretta lynn or or you know whoever (laughs) they're hoping to marty stewart or somebody you know what i mean and then it's like you know it's like who's this idiot (laughs) there's so much history tied to that venue yeah oh there's so much history but yeah i mean i i think the fact that um and the crowd's always been totally cool um and they all you know it's all you always get good applause and everything and and it's great i think the nervousness of facing a room full of people who have no idea who you are which is generally what that is for me when i when i go play the opera this is like this room full of people who you're not getting any cutie points for being in a big band they're just like what are you doing right now (laughs) um that that nervousness is always compensated by how cool the everybody that works for the opry is and how welcoming yeah. they are and how much they like make you feel right at home literally from like the second from the, the guy at the guard shack in the back to every single person you encounter uh to everybody in the house band everybody that books it runs it just everybody there has always been like just next level cool every time i've gone um and so you know yeah i feel like every time i've done it 
gets a little more comfortable and is a little bit better than the last time. And that, that last time I did it was, was really, really a, a, just a big rush. That's great. Yeah. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. You know, of course, one of the elephants in the room right now is Taylor's death. And you guys playing those shows to honor him and coming together. I'm curious, you know, what that was like, you know, whether that was a you know, we're talking about pressure on gigs or we're talking about what it's like to what the, what the emotion of gigs are, how you approach playing. Can you speak a little bit to what what was that like honoring your friend and bandmate and what what that experience has been for you? You know, honestly, I I would prefer to sidestep that for the time being, because um, I've, I've done a few interviews lately and have talked about that stuff a, a, a little bit. and. You know, unfortunately, it's like I, I believe you may. I would much prefer to just like have a conversation with anybody about anything and speak yeah. honestly and openly about all these things. But you have to be really careful because because my words get picked up by clickbait, mm. by stuff like the enemy, and and then that goes out sure. into the clickbait. I mean, I just saw a, this thing that you know, whatever that like it gets turned into clickbait taken out of context and yeah, yeah and a headline gets created that isn't at all what i said isn't at all yeah, what yeah. i meant isn't at all the context of the conversation that i had and i just don't i'm trying not to contribute to that because there's nothing more annoying to me than than seeing and this this i mean this this is nothing new this has been going on for a long time but you know i, I like to just be myself in an interview and it's like you can't anymore it's the reason most pub public figures, I think, are so vanilla nowadays is because mm. you're constantly on guard for how you're going to get misquoted, taken out of context, and then dogpiled on fucking Twitter. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like that is the unfortunate reality of the of the media and social media landscape that that exists nowadays. So I just, you know, I hate to have to be guarded about what I say on these things, but. So be I it. completely understand it, and I totally respect it. I have another thing that I'm very curious about. You guys made an entire album in a studio, scrapped it, and then went into somebody's yes. house and redid it. And there's there's like mythical lore of I believe it's called the million dollar demos. Ah, uh, yes. Tell me a little bit about this. I actually found those recently. I was cleaning out my studio and I have, I was just going through all these old boxes and I found all these old uh, CDs, burned CDs of demos and this, that, the other. And I found a copy of that and I haven't listened to it yet because I don't have a CD player. But, Which album? Um, is this, is this, um... this was my first record. This is my first record. It was one by one. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was what? 2002 yeah. or something? Uh, yeah. Ish? Around then. Yeah. yeah okay. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. With all my life, all my life is on that. 
Yes, and I, I, I haven't listened to it since we made it, so I honestly don't even remember. <laughs> Classic, yeah. Which songs were on it, and which because some of the songs we recut, you know, for the album that 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 did come out, and then some of it I feel like we didn't recut. But yeah, I got to go back and listen to that and hear like, what if you listen to it and you're like, oh my god, it's so good. What were we thinking? <laughs> so, <laughs> so set the story not. straight for me here because I just yeah. somebody. This is secondhand from third hand. Yeah, you guys yeah. went and recorded. Did you have a producer on both sessions? Yeah. Was it the same producer? Yeah. Was it no, what was different? It was, it was um, the same dude that had produced uh, "Nothing Left to Lose." Adam Casper. Yep, was the producer on, and we went and recorded it. And that was my first record with the band. Um, and uh, yeah, so you know, of, of course, for a minute, I was like, "Oh my god, I ruined the band." <laughs> we can't even make a record with with me in the band um just kidding but uh uh yeah so so we did that um the guy that engineered it was our was our good friend nick rascalinis and um and then and then uh it was decided to not put that version out and then we reconvened a few months later and um and nick wound up the uh producing Okay. Uh, not just one by one, but also the record that came after that. Um, yeah. So it was like, you know, one of those moments, you know, bands have these moments that are where you hit a little bump in the road, but we got through it. And I think ultimately we're stronger for it. See, my daughter spent 30 minutes recording one thing on GarageBand on her iPad and it didn't turn out. And she's like, you know, I'm like, yeah. look, some bands recorded. I'm like, you spent oh, yeah. 30 minutes on this. Like, just wait yeah. till you get older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go go spend three months and a million dollars on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah. so producers, I have a question because you you guys have worked with a bunch of different producers. Sure, you're talking, yeah, like Nick Butch Vig, all these different people. Yep. What yep. is it about certain producers? Like, why different? Because I know the answer for for my reasons, but I'm curious your reasons and for the listeners who maybe just don't even really know what a producer's role is. Like, yeah, what are you looking for in a producer? why these different producers at different times and why did you choose them for certain records and what do they even do for you guys as a band? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, and I don't know if this is um, a country music, rock music distinction, or if this is just a Foo Fighters and everybody else distinction. But sure. in, with, with, uh, with Foo's, um, as to the why we chose different people, I think it's just, you know, any band that's around for a long time, you know, you want to make records in different studios and with different people and your fans are lots of different people. So I, I you know, I don't know. It's a, I, I don't honestly remember from one record to the next why we worked with this guy or that guy or whatever. Sure. But, um, but they were all good experiences. Um, I feel like in rock music, producers' roles may be a little different. It's, a, it's, um, maybe less involved in your songwriting and more, you know, involved in the, in the actual production side and sounds and, and, um, and, sure. um, you know, keeping things, you know, you got all these moving parts, you got to keep it all organized and keep it moving, keep a record moving down the track, you know, mm -hmm. so it doesn't bog down. Cause uh, you know, you can get bogged down making a record sort of lose sight of what you're doing. Um, yeah. And then also like this, this sort of bedside manner. Um, I always remember, I always tell the story about Nick uh, Rascalinas because he he ha would have such a great way of getting getting the best out of you. Like you'd play something, and he go he be he was always like more stoked than anybody else in the room about 
about ma- just making the record, period. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you'd play something, he'd go, dude, that was fucking amazing. All right, let's do one more. Let's do one more. Uh, so he would always make you feel good. And then he'd be like, let's get, let's get another one, you know? Yeah. He, yeah. Would, he would never <laughs> say like, yeah, I think you could do that better. He'd just, dude, that was a, the best. That was so great. Let's do it again. You know, that, yeah. was, uh, that, was, that would be like one of his approaches. Um, I feel like with my solo stuff, you know, I made two records with Dave Cobb and I just made, and then I recorded those songs with Vance. And then, um, and I also just made a new full length with, uh, with uh, Jaron Johnson, Johnson from um, Cadillac 3 producing, um, who's a great artist, of course, in his own right, fucking awesome songwriter um, and great producer. And I feel like with, with, uh, with, um, with those records, like Jaron and, and, and Dave Cobb were like way more involved in arranging the songs and, song, and writing the songs and, mm-hmm. and putting it all together and, and more involved on that side of things than with the rock stuff I've done over the years and the producers I've worked with over there. Yeah, so, so I, a very different role. Like, but I'm also going into making those records so differently. I'm not going in as a part of a group collective. You know what sure. I mean? I'm just going in there just me. And just playing with with other, different musicians on each record, kind of thing, and 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 uh, and so it's not. I just think that's a very different environment than like a producer with with a band. I feel like has to you know, there's egos to massage a little bit, or you know, keep make everybody feel involved and happy and all that sort of thing. Where when you're just going in there alone, it's just a different animal. You know what I mean? But and I also with my solo stuff, I w- was looking for more input on the songwriting side and um and uh on and the arrangement side you know i feel like for me i can get my song to a certain point but when i when i add a an, a great producer a great engineer a room full of great musicians it's going to elevate it and get it you know way past what I, where where i would have ever taken it on my own you know so that's i was sort of like with my solo stuff i think i maybe seek out producers who are, are a little more uh hands-on than what i'm used to you know experiencing and on the rock side you know when i also imagine i mean when it's producing a band and it's a band full of members people are a little more okay with just actually saying their opinions like well i'm a member of the band i can say hey, I don't like this bridge. I think we should try this. As opposed to a studio musician who was just hired. If I was hired to play guitar on somebody's record and I came in and said like, hey, I don't like this bridge. They might be right. like, uh, excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, so, and, you know, yeah, totally. And, that, and that's the producer's role. In, on, yeah, on, totally. Like, the, on like my solo records because like, that, it's really refreshing too, like, you know, to work with like, like Jaron and Dave Cobb both who are like, they're not going to mince words about about your song you know what i mean like if you play them something and they don't like it they'll just be like yeah what else you got <laughs> you know what i mean sure. or yeah, well, yeah. you play them something that they do like they're like well you don't need that and that should be your chorus and you know cut yeah. that and ha-. you know what i mean like and it's it's it always feels like it takes the song to a better place so i i dig it i love that yeah how loud are you record how loud are your amps when you record probably not that loud you know what's I mean, not that uh, loud well you know if, if like i use like you know i'm playing like for for rock stuff a lot of times i'm playing like a freedman or a marshall or something like that um that you do have to you know you gotta gotta get it 
fairly loud for it to do its thing. You know, it's got to, it's like, but I've got numbers. Become, Let's talk numbers. I know what a Marshall sounds like on <laughs> two, five, seven, and 10. Well, what are we looking at here? <laughs> I mean, you know, with my Freedmans, I feel like maybe I'm, I got the, you know, I usually stick the gain around six and the volume around like three or something. You okay. Know what I mean, but yeah, maybe yeah. not, maybe for All recording, right. maybe even dial it a little back from that. I feel like for recording, you can, you can get a lot of mileage with a lot less gain. And it sounds big and crunchy. I mean, if you listen to my favorite guitar tones, like Angus Young and people like that, it's it's not that super modern high gain, like yeah. really saturated sound. It's it's a little more wide open, crunchy. Yeah, um, I've heard a lot of people say that, and that has been my experience as well. I mean, yeah. I don't do a ton of really hard rock stuff. Most of my stuff is really yeah. clean tone. But what? So in that case, you're you don't really. You don't dime all the gain. You're not using no, huge, no. saturated. No, not at all. Unless probably with each passing year, you know what I mean? But um, but a lot of times what'll happen when you're recording and, and with the band and like, you know, there's a bunch of parts, a bunch of guitar parts. Sometimes you might record something relatively early in the process. And once you get a few days later and everybody's put a bunch of stuff on it, now that tone no longer works and you got to go back and, and rethink it. Yeah. You know, cause a lot of time it's just finding like, you know, the tone that works for the, if it's a crunchy rhythm part, you know, it can kind of sit deep in it. But if it's some little jingle jangle thing that you want to sit on top and it's, and it's, and you can't, and your tone just doesn't work for that, then you got to rethink it. You ever use amp simulators? I mean, for just for fun, sure. But um, but I'm not live. I've never done that. No. Although I did do that, like I mentioned, that I, j I jumped up there with Hardy, and that was through an amp simulator, and I was on yeah. in ears. So to me, it just sounded. You know, I, I get the yeah, appeal yeah. of that. I've actually, I've you know what I mess around with a lot, and I will probably use for my solo stuff at some point. Um, is uh, I love that Strymon Iridium pedal. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's this big. You know what I mean? It's like this, just the size of a box and it's got um it's got a plexi an ac30 and a deluxe reverb it's like that's those are the three amp sounds that i that i use you know on pretty sure. much pretty much everything um so that thing is is super duper fun i love that thing i feel like there's so many now that are so there's dope. so many yeah i just don't want to I'm, I'm a little put off by the idea of having to learn like a whole new you know system on something I like yeah. things where I can just, where there's just knobs and I can just turn them and I know how that works and it's familiar. Sometimes know? the companies get kind of cute with things where it's like, oh, this knob, if you press it in twice, it'll do this function. If you press it in three times, it'll do this. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, but I think if it just feels more like adjusting an amp, it'll, we, it'll like, we already have a hard time getting over the mental hump of not using a real amp. Like at, at least if there's something tactile that makes us feel right. like it's an amp, We'll yeah. subconsciously be like, oh, we accept yeah. this more as an amp. Totally, <laughs> totally. Hey, man, if I was if I was just starting out and I was on a van tour with my band and you're trying to cram your whole band in some van with a couple of crew dudes and uh, your suitcases and gear and all that, I can totally understand having everybody playing through a fractal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just to save that room. Like, I get it. But if I don't, but if I don't have to carry my own shit around, I'm gonna play through a real amp. That's that's kind of my theory on it. You know, I mean, if you've ever seen my pedal board, it looks like a spaceship because I'm like, I have to bring it. everything because I mean, it's you know, I'm not carrying it. Okay, you got to pick four pedals. That's it. That's all you can bring on tour. What are you bringing? Okay, four pedals. I'm gonna go with the um, EP Boost 
Definitely. Ooh, okay. EP Boost for sure. Are you an always on EP Boost guy? No. Or do you, okay. Leads. I just use it for leads great, and parts great. that okay. I want to pop yep. out. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, I've been messing with, I've been playing with, um, with, uh, I, uh, with stereo delays lately yep. a lot. So the Strymon Deco pedal the is Deco. a must have. Oh, yeah. Over the, Deco, the timeline. Well, I have them both because what I do is I use the, oh, I use the, oh, okay. uh, I use the Deco. And I have that on that, you know, you can do that that setting where it's it splits wet dry. Yeah. And then yeah. I set the um set the delay so it's pretty much right on top of each other, but you're just hearing the tape out of one, you know, the tape yep. out of one side and the and then the dry out of the other. And it just gives it this nice, almost like slightly chorusy kind of thing. And then it's also got that saturation knob, which is just yep. nice, which is I which I pretty much leave on all the time. Is so I already have that as like kind of a boost, you know what I mean? Got it. Yeah. Um so those two pedals for sure, I would say, I mean, I use the timeline on my, on my board as well, but let's just hold off just yet. I'm going to say, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I'm, I always have phaser or flanger and like all, like I use that to death, you know? So I'm going to really? say one of those, I'm going to say a phase 90. You got to have a phase 90 on your board, you know? What's your main use of a phase 90? If you're just like, if you're just using a regular tone, what, what, is, what would cause you to be like, bro, this needs phase 90 right now? Ooh, what would cause me to, well, I usually keep the phase 90 at about nine o'clock, right? So it's, I okay. have it on a slow phase. So it's real yeah, yeah. kind of vibey. And then instead of like the wah, 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 wah. Kind okay, of vibe. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just have it like a slow sweep. Um, any song with big open chords, you know, okay. just to give it that kind of yep. like that, like a little, just a little seasick feeling to it, you know? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's country stuff, anything from the outlaw era, you know, yep. it's going to sound great. Any Waylon Jennings or anything like that, you know, it's going to sound great with a, with that phase 90 on real slow. Um, I use it all over my solo stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and what, so that leaves one other pedal. What would my one other pedal? I guess I just go with the timeline. Cause I do just like having a nice wide delay on things here and there. No overdrive, no distortion fuzz. You're getting all that from the amp. Well, I get that. I don't use an overdrive in front of my Freedmans ever. Every now and again, I might put the Freedman on the clean channel and put like a, um, like I have one of those muffaletta pedals, you know, it's like all yeah. the different big muffs. Yeah. So I might do something like that with the, with the Freedman. But if I'm, if I'm just using like crunchy rock tone, no, I, I, I sort of, I mostly have my gain right about six. I might like boost it up, you know, to like eight if it's something I want it to be a little nastier on. But no, I never, I love, I love just amp, hot amp, you know, distortion is, is my favorite thing in the world. If I'm, if it's for my solo thing and I'm playing through a Princeton or a deluxe reverb or something like that, then yes, yeah. I will usually put, um, more often than not, I put a red snapper on my board. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm And I have for. that and I have it gained pretty low, uh, but just to give it a little hair, Got you it. know, and I'll usually just leave that on and then use my volume knob. Is sort of yeah. like to, to clean it up. And then I'll use that EP boost then to, to you know, if I want to take it over the top. And, and what are you running your Princeton at? Uh, what, voltage-wise? Or the, uh, the volume? The volume, yeah. Like, because that, that's a wide, wide range of tones from like one to four to 10. Yeah, I'm more in the four. Uh, okay, more, yeah. more around four. Um, cool. And, uh, and so I keep that, and that keeps it pretty clean, you know? Yeah. Um, and then with those deluxe reverbs, I've been running those between like four and five, depending on the room, which keeps that pretty clean too, if you, if you need it. 
But like I said, I'll have that set fairly clean, then have the snapper on pretty much the whole time with the gain almost rolled off, but still there, just gritting it up just a little bit. And on the rock gigs, you're just using the Friedman six to eight ish gain. Yeah. Are you hitting other? Are you hitting other drives at all? I mean, I know you got the spaceship well, pedal. This isn't the four pedal rig. That you're well, because using. yeah, no, I'm I'm a being between the Friedmans uh, and the and and an AC30. So and for your the AC30, AC30 set to clean. I have it set. No, I have it set like like what I sort of consider like Tom Petty level distortion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. a little more jangly. It's still got some grit. But I don't go super hot on that. And that I will put like, you know, a, a Klon or a Red Snapper or something in front of it, uh, you know, if, if necessary. But a lot of times I'll just, I'll use that for like my more chimey stuff. I love that. Yeah. Last question. I, I, know, the, I know the process myself because I got a Strat, but tell me a little bit about your signature Telecaster. Yes. Tell, tell me what's going on there. I saw a video. I saw the promos. I saw the regular version, and then I saw you also play one with P90s, which we don't yeah. need to get into because that's yeah. you can't buy that off the rack. Tell me, <laughs> tell me a little bit about your process, yeah. why you chose that kind of guitar, and what that guitar gives you. Well, I basically wanted a Telecaster that would work in the Foo Fighters, and sure. Foo Fighters is most of the time not a single coil kind of band, and yeah. it's not even really a wide range kind of band. It's a humbucker kind of band. You know what I mean? That's 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 pretty much the only thing i well up to that time that was pretty much the only thing i played now yeah. i play those p90s a lot but um and so with my signature model you know i wanted it to be um there were a couple things i wanted to change on that guitar you know the original ones had like the three bolt neck i wanted it to be a four bolt neck yeah humbuckers i wanted it to be a rosewood fretboard um and so that's what we did and then and then i wanted it to be like like uh an entry level price point you know i sure. wanted people who were just my my idea was like this guitar is targeting people that are that are who i was when i was 15 you know somebody yeah just but going out and buying their first guitar you know what i mean and so the yeah. the uh, that other one you're talking about with the p90s that was a few years after we'd had the um done the original signature model i was like well let's why don't we make one that we just pull out all the stops it's got all the bells and whistles you know what i yeah. mean and and just like i don't even care what the price is i just want it to be like my perfect version of this guitar um so it's master built um yeah by fender at the custom shop and it's really beautiful it's a really nice guitar and it's got those those uh frailin uh noiseless p90s in it yeah because I, I started playing guitars with p90s in, in foods because it was a nice like um, you're, you know you were talking earlier about how do you you know multiple guitar players kind of fi each find their own place to fit in and tonally that was a nice change i think from every you know pat's usually pretty blown out guitar tone and 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 dave's you know playing those hollow bodies with the humbuckers so for me like the p90s just sort of sits somewhere a little bit different than what those guys are doing i love that well chris thanks so much for hanging with us today man it's really really an honor to have you on the podcast and stoked well, to see you. you joining us bummed that there was no dramatic uh cat video things that happened but you know maybe well, next I, time i can show you they're both sleeping right here so i'm gonna i'm gonna show you the small one the smaller of the two okay Look at this beast. Look at this beast. Jeez. <laughs> Looks like a lynx. I know. They're like borderline exotic animal. And I'm telling you, that's the small one. Um, I, I, I would also mention before I go, uh, I, I really enjoyed your Ingve Malmsteen interview. 
Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it was, that it was, was cool one. to hear. Yeah, I mean, that was like, talk about a game changer and a, and a guy that was just like, you know, I mean, that Steeler record came out in 83, which is like the first thing that we all heard him on. Yeah. And was like, holy fuck. Like, you know, like that was like the, the, just a radical, you know, moment in, in rock guitar playing for sure. That's fun hearing you say it that way because my first experience with him, and it, it's a similar thing, like when I first discovered Stevie Wonder or Prince or Ingve, like they all had this thing. Their artistry had been formed and came out. Like I first saw Ingve with like an orchestra or something. It was like, oh my gosh, what the oh, frick wow. is this guy doing? And then then I went back and found that stuff. So to hear yeah. you talk about when it first came out and first hearing oh, it, dude. that's I tell fun. You what, that's fun to hear that about that experience. I remember because you know you 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 know you think about the sort of radical shifts in guitar playing right around that time. And you had Eddie Van Halen. That was obviously, that was like, you know, the new school had arrived. That was the moment. Yeah. And then it seemed like almost overnight, like there were all these guys that could rip and there were, you know, and there were guys that were already there, like Michael Schenker and stuff that were rippers. And, and then there were guys that came kind of right after Eddie did like Randy Rhodes, who was a big, 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 big hero of mine. Even yeah. Though, you know, sadly he wasn't around for long, but, um, uh, but when Ingve happened, I remember my, our, my, our friend, this, this, one of my, one of our friends brought over a cassette tape that he had recorded. There used to be this radio station in LA called, uh, KMET. And they had a show on like Sunday nights called the Mighty Metal Shop. And he brought over this cassette tape of, I don't even remember which song it was, but of Steeler. And it was like right when that album either had just come out or was about to come out. And, um, and played it for us and that you just you'd never heard anything like it like even like even compared to the shredders of the day that was a different level of speed and precision and just mind-blowing you know like yeah i'll never forget that man it, it's interesting because the, the funnily enough the influence that that had on on me as a player was because i was coming up at this time when it was unless you were some kind of super genius, like I was never going to be able to play like that or sure. Randy Rhodes or Eddie Van Halen or any of these guys. So almost like luckily for me, this thing happened in LA that was almost like a back to basics approach with that like Guns N' Roses and Poison and Faster Pussycat and LA Guns and all these bands cropping up. It's sort of like as the sort of like, as all that metal stuff was, was those bands were kind of, coming out of the clubs and making records and getting signed to major labels. Like there was this other thing bubbling up in LA right around 84, 85 that I then got into and started to go see. And it was like, okay, this, this I could do, you know what I mean? Even like the 14 year old, 15 year old me could cop a couple of Ace Fraley licks, but yeah. I was never <laughs> going to be able to play like Ingbe Malmsteen. You know what I mean? Um, but I still love that early stuff, man. And so it was fun to hear you talk to him, you know? Man, the last, the the only time, well, the last time, I, I'm not the only time, where you really hear it the first time and just, like, it, it, it opens up, like, this, I've never heard this before, is the band Knower, K-N-O-W-E-R, and Lewis Cole. He's, he's like the cat in Knower and this girl Genevieve, or Lewis and Genevieve. Lewis Cole, when I heard that, when I first heard him, when I first heard Knower a few years ago, I had that sort of feeling where I'm calling all my friends like, dude, you have to check this out. Oh my gosh, this right. Like when, when's yeah. the, sorry to extend this, but when's the, when's the last time you felt that? Oh God. I mean, the last time, I mean, certainly when Nevermind came out, that was one of those moments where yeah. it just, 
you're just like you know those kind of conversations with your friends like holy fuck have you heard this fucking band nirvana um <laughs> was one of those i mean it, it, like i was a maybe maybe i i think i don't know if you have those moments anymore past a certain age you know what i mean Cause you're just so so sure. like you know kind of jaded or whatever but like yeah it was when like the strokes and the hives came out sure. that was one yeah, of those yeah. moments for me like whoa something great is happening here you know like cool. all these great bands um what sturgill simpson i think was maybe a moment like that for me yeah. like whoa listen to this dude's voice have you heard this and his guitar player at that time holy yeah. moly i get i don't know maybe i shouldn't be so cynical about it. i guess those moments just kind of happen every couple of years where, where somebody puts out a record that just seems like everybody you know has it you know mm. yeah yeah well i dig it well again thanks so much man I appreciate this. This is this is fun to hear you talk about all this, and I'm such a huge fan of what you do. I love it. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. Awesome, man. I appreciate it, man. Take care. Yeah, you too. There you have it. Chris is pretty cool. You couldn't see it, but his cat was gigantic. He's not kidding when his cats are huge. I saw that sucker pop up in the back of the screen. I was like, whoa! Seriously, it looked like he had a lynx back there. It was insane. I don't even... I, wow. I'm, I'm shocked. I'm bringing up the cats, but you know what? The episode was great. I think Chris is a dope musician. He's got a lot of wisdom. And I'm excited to see where the next few years take him and his artistry and his musicality. I'm here for the ride, man. I'm here to watch it. Hey, and if you stuck around to the end, thanks for hanging with us. We really appreciate it. If you could give one of those... Follows, subscribes, likes. You know the things to do on the different platforms. I don't know what platform you're watching this on, but give the thing that lets the algorithm know, hey, I like listening to this stuff. We got a lot of great guests coming up this season. We'll see you next time. Peace!